Hi, and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier, and today speaking to someone we've had on the program once before, but uh, is back again to talk about a very exciting new book and a slightly different twist on the way that uh, she's gone about this one. Vicky Petratus will join me shortly. But a word on our fantastic podcast partners, and they are terrific people. It's CSCG. You can give them a call and have a chat. And why wouldn't you? Double nine seven four eight triple three. They're the people to talk to about your finances, about your financial goals. We've all got them. Uh, we're getting there slowly and surely, hopefully, uh, but they can help you uh, achieve exactly what it is you want to achieve with your finances, whether it's superannuation, uh, whether it is uh, you're looking at investing, whether it's how you've got it all structured. They can help you with all of that. They are just terrific people and their level of service uh, is just fantastic. Give them a call, double nine seven four eight triple three, or jump on the website and find out all about them. That's cscg.com.au. The Unbelieved is the name of this book. It's by Vicky Petratus. Vicky's been on once before and we talked about uh, some of the true crime that uh, Vicky has written and this time she's taken a different tact. This is crime fiction. So uh, instead of real criminals, it's made-up ones. It's a made-up story. Totally different genre in many, many ways, but I'm sure one feeds the other, as we'll find out in this chat with Vicky. Congratulations on, uh, on a terrific book and, a, and already an award-winning book. I know, I know. It was so exciting. I think I'm living every writer's dream at the moment. <laughs> to put my first novel, so I've written non-fiction, but to put my first novel in for the prize and for it to have won is just, yeah, beyond belief. The Allen and Unwin Crime Fiction Award is what we're talking about. Well over 300 entrants and uh, manuscripts they went through to, to come back and, uh, and say to you that, uh, that you'd won it. Uh, I have to ask you, the, the obvious first question is, and having a great body of work that you have in the, in the real crime world, and then to jump in to write a, a, a book of fiction, was that, a, was that a hard thing to do? Was it something you'd been planning on doing for a while or how, how did that uh, sort of transition happen? Well, it was funny because when I first became a writer at 19, I wanted to write crime fiction, and it was because I knew nothing about the world, was incredibly naive, and, you know, I'd led a regular law-abiding life with my large family of brothers and sisters and regular parents, and it was when I started to read um, true crime in order to get an insight into the criminal mind and why people committed crime, and that was when I got hooked on true crime, so I feel like Finally, getting around to writing the novel is really coming full circle from where I started. Working in the, you know, talking about the Frankston murders and uh, books about people like Paul Dale and all those things that you've done in the in the uh, in the real crime world, did that give you like an encyclopedia of, uh, of bad things in your head that you were able to call on uh, to put together when you when you started to think about this book a few years back? Totally, <laughs> it, you know. Like, I think writing these stories for 30 years, it didn't just give me an encyclopedia of all the bad stuff that had happened, but it also gave me an encyclopedia of strength so that when a crime is committed, the community rises up and they fight back and they sign petitions and they, they you know, show up at uh, anniversary gatherings. And so there's so much support and goodness in the community and there's so many strong people that, for me, true crime has never just been about, you know, the knife-wielding attack. Yeah. It's been about community resilience and it's been about how families in their loss 
might rise up and become advocates or how the community becomes stronger. And we know this in fiction, that the hero is always tested and they get stronger. They never, or not usually, they're not usually crushed by it. Everything that happens makes you stronger. And so I really wanted to show that because I think some people think that true crime is all, is all about the violence. But I think if I looked at, say, the Frankston murders, that there'd only be a couple of pages of violence and the rest of it is about the dogged pursuit of the offender. It's about the sorrow and loss of the families. And it's really about the human condition. So I think fiction, you know, was a natural extension of that. And yeah. certainly it, it informed everything that went into that book. Yeah. And that uh, there might only be one victim in a particular case, but the ripple effect is uh, that's one of the things that you obviously tapped into when you're writing the real crime stuff. Oh, definitely. This ripple effect. I'm doing a podcast at the moment on the Frankston murders to coincide with his 30-year, uh, you know, non-parole period. All then, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, the ripple effect is huge and it's everlasting. And for, for a lot of people, it, they will say it is as raw today as it was 30 years ago. And so I think in fiction, I tapped into that for, um, for the unbelieved because I wanted people to see the ripple effect. It's not just a crime and then nothing. Yeah. These crimes form you. They form who you are today. And I really wanted to show that. You can't go back to what you were and who you were because you are forever changed by what happens. But that doesn't mean changed for the absolute worst. It could mean changed to become stronger. Yeah. In, in 2017, when you sat down to, to start writing The Unbelieved, I mean, the, the lovely expression we use a lot when we talk about this sort of thing is you can't make this stuff up when, when you're dealing with real situations, you look at it and go, you couldn't make this up. Well, then you had to sit down in 2017 when you decided to write this and you actually did have to make it up. <laughs> yeah, but not so much. There's so much is based on truth. I found that, that I could just call on, uh, I mean, the dog waffles in the book is totally based on all of the police dogs that I wrote about when I wrote The Dog Squad. Yeah. I thought, I need a police dog in there and all of the different murders and sexual assaults. And we're hearing about this in the news all the time so that you really are drawing from these people and drawing from the kind of language that, um, you know, the language of victimisation and the language of the good bloke narrative and all of that is just, you know, you can just pluck it from the headlines. And your your dealings with, with police too has been uh, been terrific in terms of, uh, that, that would have been a, a marvellous insight into, into the, the way they operate. Oh, incredible insight that I've interviewed people from, you know, the Chief Commissioner all the way down to uh, people that are sort of first cab off the rank. In fact, I'm going out to the Academy today for a graduation. But I think you just get these insights. And and I just liberally steal. One of my best friends uh, was a cop. And there's a scene in the book where um, Waza, Antigone's partner, is chasing down uh, a crook and he jumps over a fence and lands on top of the guy. And that's totally stolen from my uh, friend's first arrest, that she did exactly that, jumped over a fence and, and face-planted on top of the guy who she didn't realise had fallen over. And she's going, hey, that sounds familiar. And I'm just like, yep, totally. <laughs> so a lot of that, you know, people say that it, it, there's a lot of reality into it. And I think because there, there, there's actual reality in it, it's just disguised as fiction. Yep. 
It's a big book. I mean, it's a you know three hundred plus page uh, uh, book. Uh, started in twenty seventeen. Was it an easy book for you to write, or did it just flow out of you? I think it, it did just flow. I, I did it as a part of my PhD in creative writing. Yep. And so I wanted to challenge myself to do something completely different, to take all of the anger and all of the frustration that I felt in, you know, low conviction rates for crimes against women and and the social narrative that, you know, victim blaming. And I wanted to take all of that and kind of make it right. And so in a lot of ways it did flow and I had, I wanted to take my time with it though. I, I was really confident when I entered it that it would do well in the prize because it was word perfect. It was as good as I could get it. Normally a book takes maybe a year. I'd been, you know, tinkering with this for four years. So I was pretty confident that it was my very, very best work. And um, so, yeah, it did flow. But I used the deadline for the competition as a deadline to get it finished. Yeah. Uh, tell me about building your lead character, Senior Detective Antigone Pollard. How did, that, how did you go about building that particular person? Well, it, she is based on something that Brian the Skull Murphy said to me. So <laughs> Brian, you know, I mean, we've all heard of Brian, the the Australia's toughest cop, and he was a legend in his time, and I wrote a book on him. And something that he said to me one day just stuck in my brain, and he said to me, he said, I never felt fear. I just moved through the world, and I never, ever felt afraid. He fed off adrenaline, but and he would go where angels fear to tread. And, you know, there was one situation where he'd gone into a house where a guy uh, who, who was no doubt suffering from PTSD from being, I think it was in Vietnam. And so he's shooting out the window of his house, shooting out the streetlights, shooting at all the cars in the in the court where he lives. And so the cops are all there and, and Brian gets called to there and he just said, I'm going in. So he walked up to the, the stairs of this place and the guy's going, oh, I'm going to shoot you, put your gun down. And Brian's like, hey, mate, don't shoot me. I plan to take my kids fishing on the weekend. Be a pity if I miss that. Oh. So it was very that laconic. And, and the guy actually said, I'm going to put my gun in your mouth and you come in, I'll let you come into the house. And I just had this moment look, looking at Brian across the table as he's saying this. I'm like, holy smoke. <laughs> and his skin was, you know, hot because the guy had been firing it. And, you know, obviously Brian that was adrenaline fueled, but, you know, he went and sat in the guy's kitchen. They talked for hours. He talked him off the ledge. And, and got him to surrender. And I just thought, this is what you can do if you don't feel fear. So when I came to create a character, I thought, I want that for her. I want to create that in a female character. Because I think women are strong. You know, every woman that you know, every woman that I know, we just get on with stuff and we are strong. Yep. And I think sometimes in fiction, they can, you can really get this damsel in distress or this, these side characters, but women are tough. And they, they, you know, they, they're doing stuff. And I, I just wanted to have this character that was able to be strong in her world and fearless. And Sandra Nicholson, I see, is another name that you, you mentioned as an inspiration for the character as well? Totally. And I won't reveal that the character that she was an inspiration for because that's kind of that spoiler alert. But yeah. um, Sandra is a great friend of mine and... Um, and so I've listened to a lot of her stories and I think every time you speak to anyone about Sandra and there's this consistent 
she was fantastic. What a fair. And she was the, you know, the boss of so many uh, of today's cops. And there's, everyone says she was fair, she was calm, and, and that there was never any, even though she had positions of great power in the police force, and before Christine Nixon was the highest ranking uh, female police officer, but she had this way of dealing with people that made everybody feel really comfortable and supported, uh, but she didn't take bad behaviour and she would call it out, mm. but it was never in a power way. It was always in a way that was solution-based. And I just loved that. And she, in her retirement, is always really supportive of if any writers want, hey, Sandra, can you just tell me how to arrest someone? Or <laughs> she would just give the time and the patience. And she is all about uh, supporting women. Yep. And I just think I wanted that character. I wanted to steal pieces of, of uh, that. And when I signed a book for her, I'm like, you know, thanks for kind of, you know, not minding that I based a character on you. <laughs> Vicky, you're a storyteller. Your stories in the past have been real, real stories and, and stories, you know, that, that have about people's hurt and pain and all those things. Was was there more of a joy in writing this for you as a writer because there wasn't that element involved in it? Yeah, definitely. Because you're not you're you're creating and reconstructing pain and damage, but you can have a certain amount of justice. And I think what this book is ultimately about is that the justice system where women are concerned, it doesn't work. You know, the conviction rates for sexual assault are about 4%. The system does not work. And so I think the book says, well, you know, if the system doesn't work and we all know that it doesn't work and we don't trust it, what's next? What have women got left? And what they have got left is they've got voice. And we're seeing this with uh, people like Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame, that we're seeing them bypassing systems that don't work and standing on podiums and saying, this is my story, and they are believed. And I think there's this ring of voice that comes out. So I think that's the ultimate question of the book. When the law doesn't work, what have women got left? And we have our, and we are strong. And it's probably a sad indictment on uh, on where we sit that justice is easier to find in fiction than it is in real life, which is obviously what, what you're trying to... I guess, get to at some stage. It, it totally is. There's no, uh, there's a great quote that, again, I, I took from um, uh, the father of Matthew Levison. That was a, a case of um, Matthew died and there was a, a whole case. And, and the father says, you know, there's not a justice system. It's just a system. I'm like, I'm totally stealing that because that's yeah. perfect. <laughs> I think we expect justice. And what, what I find incredible is when people say, hey, you know, let the justice system do its job and innocent until proven guilty. One of the reviewers actually for the book said, uh, it's so unfair that a victim has to prove their story happened while the offender sits in court and he's innocent until proven guilty. This is twisted. And in a he said, she said, uh, Brie Lee in her wonderful book, Eggshell Skull, says, they always believe the he. Why is that? Um, and this, women are liars. We see this uh, replicated in Hillary's a liar, Amber Heard's a liar. And it's like, this is the worst thing that we can say about women. She's a liar. Whereas the men can get away with, you know, then as, as opposed to Donald Trump isn't a liar. Uh-huh. But Hillary's liar seems to be bigger than and an excuse to just 
uh, jump on, on these public figures. And I think, you know, studies, Patrick Tidmarsh's wonderful book, I'd interviewed Patrick and his wonderful book on why we get is so wrong is he says, you know, studies have shown between, I think he says about between about two and eight, he settled on 5% of reports are false and 95% of them are true. He cites one, he does a lot of training for police officers and armed with these figures of academic studies, he said to one young cop, he said, uh, how many reports of sexual assault do you think are false? And this young cop said to him, all of them. And Patrick sort of said, "Um, excuse me? And he said, my senior sergeant says every woman that comes in is just doing it to get back at guys and, you know, because they hate men. And, you know, Patrick is taken aback on this intergenerational um, male understanding of, and this is what women might be facing when they walk in to report something, that that cop will be standing behind the desk and his default setting is you're a liar. It's, re- it's really disturbing stuff. Yeah, it is. So I sort of hope that the novel goes some way in addressing that. And certainly the reviews that I've read have a lot of people have said this novel has made me rethink how I look at headlines. And as a, as a teacher and as a writer, I'm like, yes, this, these are the best kind of reviews. Yeah. Oh, well, look, congratulations on the book. The first thing that, that caught my eye was in the dedication when you said, when life is brutal, may we all have the courage to knee it in the groin. I thought, <laughs> thought that, set, that set the parameters for where we're going. This. And uh, where did you, where, I know where Deception Bay is, but where did you find Deception Bay as the, uh, as the town to set the book in? Well, I knew that there was one in Queensland, so yep. mine is set a couple of hours from Melbourne, so clearly it was fictitious. I was actually driving around and looking at maps and saying, I want to set it somewhere real. And I found Riddles Creek, and I thought, Riddles Creek, Uh, oh, my God, that is perfect. And it's perfect as that double meaning. But I drove up to Riddles Creek, and I took pictures and got a sense of the scout hall and the police station. And then I thought, if Riddles Creek has a mayor, and I have a mayor in my book, who's, who's not a nice person? Then all of a sudden, it struck me why people make up towns, because... You know, if the if the mayor is say a wife beater, um, then the mayor of the actual mayor, if Riddles Creek has one, I don't know whether it has one, but the actual mayor could stand up and say, "Hey, is she writing about me?" Yeah. So I think you have to. So I wanted that riddle, and then I just came up with the name Deception Creek. Googled it, thought there's not one in Victoria. I can safely just make that one up. <laughs> no, it's beautiful, beautifully, uh, beautifully done. Uh, congratulations on the on the book. Uh, obviously, you're, you're busy still doing all the other things that you do, including your, your podcast series. Yeah, podcasting. This this year is the first year that I'm not teaching full time. I've always worked full time oh. um, alongside the writing of the book. And so this year I've taken the plunge to take a year off and just focusing on the writing. And I've got to say, it's lovely. School keeps, you know, my friends at school keep saying, do you miss school? No. <laughs> <laughs> no do not. Are you writing right now? Are you, are you in the middle of another book or what? where are you at? Yeah, I'm doing the sequel for this. Ah. And I'm also doing, I'm rewriting my Philip Island book too because oh, right. we've got interest in, uh, in a documentary series. So I really want to read write that book, start from scratch, and do that as a book about my, following this case, first 30 years and being the conduit for 
all of the information that comes from the public. So I've got fiction, non-fiction, uh, podcast, and my PhD, which I have to finish. So lots of interesting writing projects. Sometimes I wish I just had one, yeah. but it never works out that way. The appetite for true crime and for and for crime fiction is uh, is almost insatiable, not only just in this country, but uh, but worldwide. Yeah, I started true crime when it was unpopular. Mm. So you've got it, the context was when I wrote the Frankston murders and sent it around to publishers. This is 1995. It got rejected by everyone. Yep. And in the end, I bumped into John Sylvester at the Homicide Cup Eve Ball. And he, I said, John, I can't get a publisher. And he said, do it yourself. We do. You know, they had Floridale Press and they, they self-published their underbellies and not self-published, but they had a publishing company to do that. And he said, yeah, it's really easy. Ask Andrew Rules. So I met with Andrew and he goes, you know, just get an ISBN and get a designer. And he sort of took me through it. And I went, thanks, guys. And took out a loan and self-published it. And I, I borrowed $20,000, which was huge back then. Yeah. And I had to sell 2,300 books to break even. And in the first three weeks, we sold 5,000 books. Wow. And it went gangbusters and it was a bestseller, I think, within about two or three months. And so I think from me doing that, it wasn't the first true crime book, but it was the first, I think, big one. And I think from... Forever After, publishers, a friend of mine approached a publisher just after Frankston and his publisher grabbed it and did a print run of 10,000 books uh, straight off the mark on the strength of how well Frankston did. And so I think that um, I kind of was writing in this against the tide and, um, and, and now the world is caught up. Clearly, I was very discerning when I was very young. But the world, you know, Australia certainly. This was big overseas. Yeah. Um, Australia caught up and now with podcasting, it's huge. Yeah. Well, the world of crime fiction has now opened up for you and beautifully so with the with the unbelieved. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Vicky. Uh, good luck for the future. Thank you so much. The Unbelieved is the name of the book. A very prolific writer and podcaster in her own right and uh, terrific to have her on uh, on our authorised podcast. Thanks, uh, Vicky, for her time. That book is available now through Alan and Unwin. Don't forget, to, you can also uh, do something about your finances. Do something about the picture that is uh, is sitting in front of you with uh, your finances. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it? Could it be better? I'm sure it could. And the people who can help you navigate your way through all those things uh, are CSCG, our fantastic Fantastic podcast partners. Give them a call, double nine seven four eight triple three, or jump on the website and see what they're all about, cscg.com.au. Until the next time, I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Authorised Podcast. There's plenty more where you found this podcast, uh, some great authors we've spoken to in the past about some fantastic books, and there's more on the way in the future. Listener.